hope you get your Bibles with you. Uh, it's very helpful to have those in front of you if you can. I'll try to put a little bit up on the, the screen, but um, uh, most of it will be in front of us, hopefully, in the Word of God. Uh, we're going to have a bit of a Q&A at the end as well. So if you've got a question, write it down so you don't forget. You can ask later on if I'm not clear on something or wherever it may be. And uh, don't forget to use the comment cards, uh, the tear-off slip in the bulletin, and you can put a, a comment in the comment box and I might, I'll be able to get back to it next week. How about we pray, ask God to help us with this passage. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you, God, that you're God who speaks. Lord, thank you for church, that you've called us together, you've gathered us together in your name. Uh, what a privilege it is to come together. And thank you for that. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would guide me in my words and uh, all of our hearts as we respond to your good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when, uh, when Arnold walked into church, he was relieved. He got late back from his shift that night, uh, the night before, I should say, and he slept in and he was rushing and rushing and rushing. When he finally got to church, he could sit down and relax and just, just take it all in. Well, Bev, well, Bev, this was her first time at church, so when she walked in, well, she had great hesitation. Where will I sit? I wonder if I'll know anyone. Um, I, I wonder if I can get away quickly if I need to, although everyone does seem to be quite friendly so far. Then there's Ricardo. Ricardo has been coming for a while. And as he walked into church, ah, he smelt Mrs Wallace's brownies. And that's all he could think about for the rest of the time. Then there's Susie and Jack. Well, as they walked in, they were just thankful to God that they made it. The kids had finally stopped fighting. Uh, they were all fully clothed. Well, clothed enough, anyway. Um, and once again, entering the church car park seemed to have a silencing effect on any marital disharmony. There's Natalia. Well... Frankly, Natalia, she's just bored. Uh, here we go again. As she walked in, she thought, oh, same old, same old. She's tired and, frankly, she'd rather be in bed. Um, and she hopes that we don't sing that song again. You know the one. There's Jeff. Well, Jeff is actually itching to hear the story. Jeff read it before, before he went to bed last night and he's been thinking about it and he's got a few questions for the minister, so he's looking forward to that. There's Bruce. Uh, Bruce, well, he's looking forward to encouraging Ken. Ken's going through a tough time. Emma, as she walked in, she looked forward to the encouragement she gets when she's singing, uh, with God, singing God's praises together in church. And then there's Scott. Well, Scott's been here for a, already for a while this morning. Uh, he likes to come early just in case there's things that there's things to do. He might be able to help somehow um, in case a new person walks in. Well, that's Scott, isn't it? Now, in a roundabout sort of way, I think 1 Corinthians 14 addresses this issue of how to walk into church. Now, it's got nothing to do with sort of funny walks or the, our length of our stride or anything like that. Paul instructs the church at Corinth what their priorities ought to be as they gather together, as they walk into church. As followers of Jesus gather together to meet, as we walk in, 
the Apostle tells us there's some things we ought to have on our, have on our minds, uh, some things we ought to be doing. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 gives us four, I think. Uh, we're going to look at the first three today. If you've got your outline there, as you walked in, you would have got one. Uh, as we gather together, we love, we build up, and we make sense. And we keep things in God's good order. That's next week. You know, they are four things that, that, that make this gathering so special, aren't they? Uh, they are four things, as Grace mentioned before, four things that make this gathering here at Robertson so special. Uh, love, build each other up, um, we make sense, we keep in God's good order. Let's look at the first one, we love. Now, the issues in Corinth, uh, let me just, sorry, do that, there we go. There's my picture. Missed it. That's okay. The issues in Corinth were many and varied. Uh, issues to do with unity. You might remember, I know it's been a few weeks for us now, uh, spiritual gifts and how to use those spiritual gifts. Remember, for the common good. Or just being spiritual. What does it mean to be spiritual? To, 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 to have the spirit means to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. We, we looked at that a number of weeks ago. And there was a bit of a spiritual arrogance about them, and, and Paul was not backward in coming forward, bringing them back down to earth, if I could put it that way. Now, back, if we look back to chapter 12 uh, in our Bibles, unity and giftedness are what Paul deals with specifically. And now, and look how the apostle finishes uh, chapter 12, verse 31. He closes with, but eagerly desire the greater, greater gifts. In the context, and we'll see more today, that the greater gifts are the gifts that serve and strengthen, that build up the church. And then next verse, 13 verse 1, the way to do that, to eagerly desire the greater gifts, in fact, the most excellent way is love. Without love, any gift is a resounding gong, he goes on to say. Uh, it's a clanging symbol. It's not a very nice sound. It gains nothing without love. In fact, it's worthless. So today as we come to chapter 14, as Paul, Paul gets back in the, into the nitty-gritty of gathering together and doing church together, Paul writes again, follow the way of love. Still talking about love. And as you eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. We'll figure out why in a moment. So the first thing we must think about as we walk into church, as we gather together, is love. Love. Uh, we're told especially, we're told, well, especially I should say over this last week, um, that love is all around and that love is in the air. That's what we've been told. Um, well, the church at Corinth, uh, and um, which in many ways was not dissimilar to modern-day Australia, or at least the city of Corinth was not dissimilar to modern-day Australia, Paul needed to remind the people what love is. Perhaps we, we need that same reminder. So let's think about some parts of that, chapter 13, that we read a little while back. Uh, some of it's up on the screen now. See, love is not envy. Remember those words? Love is not envy. Love is not jealous of another person's good. Love does not boast. It's not focused on what people think of me. Love isn't proud. It's not preoccupied with my own importance. Love isn't rude. 
It doesn't offend by using improper words and actions. Love isn't self-seeking. So love turns my concerns away from myself and my welfare. That's what love does. It's not easily angered, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. It keeps no record of wrongs. To love is to lose interest in my rights. It's patient. It's kind. It's concerned for the other. It's truthful. It's faithful. Remember that very well-known passage. A good definition I came across this week of love, I'll put it up on the screen here, I think it's pretty good. Love is the desire which leads to action for the good of another, even at cost to yourself. I'll read it again. Love is the desire which leads to action for the good of another, even at cost to yourself. Think about those words for a minute. That's what love is. Where do we find such love? Well, I reckon we find it here. (laughs) I reckon we find it here amongst God's people as we serve each other, as we give to each other, as we hug each other when we need it after church or whenever it might be, as we uh, welcome each other, as we support each other, as we make that phone call, as we have coffee with someone or wherever it might be. That's where we find love. We find it here. But where do we see it most clearly demonstrated? We see it most clearly demonstrated, of course, in the cross of Jesus Christ, because that's the love we ought to imitate. That's the love we ought to keep seeing here, isn't it? In the cross of Jesus Christ. And here in 1 Corinthians 14, God says, as we walk into church, as we gather together, we must love. It's the most excellent way. Okay, second priority then. Second priority as we gather together. The second thing we ought to have in our minds as we walk into church, we gather together to build up. In fact, Paul's really, he's already touched on this, hasn't he? Remember back to chapter 12, verse 7? Uh, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit, speaking in the context of gifts, the gifts are given for the common good. And now to chapter 14, have a look at verse 2 and following. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. You see that? And then later in 14 verse 12, skip down a bit. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. Now I reckon there are two types of building up that occurs in a church. There are two types of bodybuilders. Now there's this type. I do apologise for that. That might stay in your memory for quite some time. Um, (laughs) This type of bodybuilder, right? That type of bodybuilder, they build themselves up for their own gain. Try to focus here if you can. Um, They build themselves up for their own gain uh, and their own fame. So there's been too much of this in Corinth. That's what Paul says. Too much mirror gazing, too much boasting, too much one-upmanship. I've got bigger spiritual muscles than you. Look at my spiritual muscles. He, my spiritual muscles follow this spiritual muscle, a leader. And so one-upmanship. And Paul says it's worldliness. Too much of that. But then there's this other type of bodybuilder. 
Builders of the body of Christ. That type of bodybuilder. The church, the, the body of Christ. This is what God calls his church to do, to build each other up. Now, for most of us, that's just going to mean, it'll mean brick by brick. That's what it will mean. Slowly, one by one, encouraging, edifying, comforting, strengthening those people we know around us. But also in new friendships, and also, also as people walk, walk in for the first time, what it might be on a Sunday, visitors and so on. That's what we're going to do. Others, it might also mean speaking encouraging, edifying words to larger groups. So leading services, leading Bible study groups, whatever they might be. Both just as important as each other. Uh, both build up the body. The bodybuilding God wants us to do, remember, eagerly desire, as we come together, is the type that strengthens, encourages, comforts and edifies. Now, Paul says in verse 4 that tongues don't do that. Tongues don't do that, but prophecy does. Now, not that Paul's necessarily against speaking in tongues, but he'd rather prophesy so that everyone is edified or built up. So, let's find a little bit of clarity on what Paul is referring to here when he speaks of prophecy. Um, and why that builds up, but tongues don't. So a bit of clear thinking is needed, isn't it? And, and we did talk about this a, a number of weeks back when we looked at chapter 11. So some of this is repeated, but that's okay. New Testament prophecy, what we read here in Corinth, is not Old Testament prophecy. It's very different. Old Testament prophecy, prophecy was given by the Spirit, so the Word of God was given by the Spirit at, to specific people at specific times and specific places. We see that. And if he disobeyed an Old Testament prophet, well, it was like disobeying God. And in the Old Testament, uh, false prophets were stoned. Whereas in the New Testament, what we see in verse uh, 29, in the New Testament, uh, prophecies are weighed up and evaluated. It's quite different, isn't it? Now, at the risk of stating the obvious as well, uh, New Testament prophecy was clearly public and it was verbal. So people spoke it in the public gatherings. If it was genuine, well, it was encouraging edifying, and it pointed to the truth of the gospel. Today, like in the days of Corinth, because all Christians now have the Spirit of God, we can prophesy. We can speak the Scriptures and point to the gospel. The, the Spirit speaks through us as we speak uh, the Scriptures, which is the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6 tells us. The New Testament teach, uh, tells us, unlike teaching in the public congregations, both men and women can prophesy in the mixed church gatherings. But prophecy is always under the control of the speaker. It's not involuntary and ecstatic. It comes from nowhere. No, no. And again, more of that about that next week in terms of the order, God's good order. The question is, do we have it today? Well, I think I've said before, yes, I think we do. But it must always build up and edify the church, and it must speak God's word, and it must point to the gospel. Testimonies, for example, when someone shares God's work in their life, if it points to the gospel and speaks God's word, I think it's prophecy. And missionaries returning and sharing of God's work from the mission field, I think that's prophecy, it's an example. 
Perhaps even as simple as someone being interviewed about being a Christian at work and how God is changing them to be more like Jesus as it points to the gospel and God's word. I think that's prophecy. Now, speaking in tongues, unless interpreted, where there's a distinction in the notes, to use Paul's words, speaking in tongues don't do those things. They don't edify. They don't build up. Uh, so in the church, Paul would rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in a tongue. Let's make a couple of comments about speaking in tongues. First, I don't have the gift of tongues. I don't have it. Um, should I pray for that gift? Well, remembering that it is a gift. So someone can't force it on me and someone can't insist that I must have it either. No, 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 it's a gift. It's given by God. Now, it's clear Paul's priority in the church is prophesying, prophecy, speaking God's word to one another, not tongues. So I should pray for that gift first and foremost rather than tongues. So what is this gift of speaking in tongues? Well, it's not entirely clear. Paul implies in verse 10 that the gift of tongues are or can be different types of spoken languages. So similar to the, the example at Pentecost in Jerusalem, when the Spirit was first given to all the apostles. The apostles spoke in tongues of different languages and onlookers recognised those different worldly languages and they were amazed. Uh, they were amazed for a couple of reasons. They were amazed because of what they were saying in those languages that they couldn't normally speak. And they're amazed that they were Galileans. Galileans is like, you know, the, the hick town. It's the, the not very smart people come from Galilee. It's that type of thing. And they're amazed that the Galileans were so multilingual. And as the gospel went out to the nations, as Acts records, uh, the spirit was confirmed in people's lives, uh, particularly in the Gentiles, as an outward sign. Uh, sorry, the, the spirit was confirmed in people's lives by the outward sign of speaking in tongues. Some have argued, therefore, that tongues were only given as a gift in the apostolic age, in the age of the apostles, as the church expanded while they were alive, as the church grew and the gospel went out. Um, one could argue in response to that that Paul's discussion here in 1 Corinthians uh, with the church at, at Corinth seems to nullify that argument, um, I think, somewhat. Another related question is, can the gift of tongues be nonsensical verbal uh, babble, so to speak? So apart from human language. Possibly, possibly verse 2 might imply that, if you want to look back at that later on or now. Uh, but that gift, Paul says, is personal. It's just between you and God and it's not for the church gathering. Paul refers to this type of gift, this type of tongues as mysteries with the, with the person's spirit. But what is clear is that when tongues are used in church, they must be interpreted. Otherwise, this is next week or verse 28, the speaker should keep quiet and speak to himself and God. Finally, though, we, tongues can be a sign of judgment. If you've got your Bibles there, flip over to the end of the bit where we read, verse 20 and following. See, Paul quotes Isaiah 28. This is the passage that Brooke read to us. In verse 21, he quotes Isaiah 28, where Isaiah, the prophet, warns, he speaks God's word and the power of God's spirit, he warns unrepentant Israel, and it's quite a strong passage, isn't it, about unrepentant Israel, all the things it says about beer and all that sort of stuff, their drunkenness. Uh, unrepentant Israel of the judgment 
of impending Assyrian invasion. They're coming. Because the people refuse to hear the word of God from the mouth of their own prophet, they will only hear strange tongues through the lips of foreigners. Uh, So Paul explains that tongues that are not interpreted and are nonsensical babble in the church gathering are a sign of judgment. So, for example, and verses 22 and 23, difficult verses, if all the visitor hears is a babble of tongues, this unbeliever, this visitor, will conclude that this group is just like any other wacky cult going around in Corinth of the day where people spoke in those sort of unintelligible languages. That's what was going on. Tongues will be a sign not pointing to an urging belief, like prophecy does, but unbelief. For the visiting unbeliever, this babble will be a sign of judgment, just as the foreign language of the invading Assyrians was a sign of judgment to the people of Israel. Now, if, however, the visiting unbeliever hears the intelligible words of prophecy, well, his response is going to be quite different. Look at verse 24. I'll read it out. But if an unbeliever or someone who does not uh, understand comes in while everyone is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. And he'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. He's heard the word of God that day. You see, when we gather together, just like it's important to love and to edify, it's really important that we make sense. There's the third thing we, we ought to remember as we gather together, and it follows on from what we've been discussing. Now, it's interesting, one of the, if you remember a bit of what we've talked about over the year in terms of the Reformation, that's 500 years, October 31 was 500 years to the day that Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church at Wittenberg, the church door. Uh, one of the most significant reforms, and we take it for granted, one of the most significant reforms of the 16th century Reformation was when Luther and Calvin and, and Cramner and, and so on and others uh, led services and preached either in German or French or English in their native tongue, in the tongue, in the language that people spoke. It was, ama- it was so significant. People could understand. See, up until that moment, it was only Latin, only Latin. Now, I, I um, there's nothing really to boast in, but when I was in year seven, I did a bit of Latin. And I achieved my lowest ever academic mark in Year 7 Latin. I got 13%. I had no idea what was going on. Nothing. I think I got 13% because I got my name right. Um, No idea. I still don't really understand Latin very well. Um, Maybe that's the gift of languages and tongues I don't have. I don't know. Um, Now, these... Before the Reformation, for many people, they were like me in Year 7 Latin. They had no idea what was going on. Speaking Latin, they were not educated. Most people were not educated and not educated even in Latin. Most people had no idea. They simply trusted the priest and that didn't work out so well because the priests abused that and taught things that were not in the Bible. It's so important that when we gather together, we make sense. We understand what's going on. We understand each other. So when we pray or sing or speak, Well, Paul says we need to use our minds. We don't just switch them off. We need to use intelligible words. That doesn't mean big words. 
It means words we understand. Words that can be understood so that people know what they are, uh, so that people know what we are saying and can therefore be built up, edified and hear the word of God. So let's pick up Paul's argument back up again in in, uh, verse 12. He says, So it is with you, since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Let's pause for a minute here. Some important little details we've got to, we've got to pick up on. Notice that, notice that, that uh, this is not the Spirit, as in God's Spirit in us. Now, the Spirit being referred to, no, no capital S, the Spirit being referred to is more like what we would say is my heart, all right? or, and connected to my emotions, that Spirit in me, like that. Even my character, my personality is my heart. Now, now Paul plays on a um, uh, Platonic understanding. Uh, Plato, uh, fourth uh, century uh, Greek philosopher, very popular in uh, first century Corinth. He plays on this understanding, which seemed to be affecting the church. The understanding that whether uh, this Plato's understanding of, of the spirit was superior to the mind and separate. Uh, two separate things. So the spirit was superior to the mind, and when it came to uh, inspiration, when inspiration occurs, if you're inspired by something, whatever it might be, then the mind, well, that's displaced. It's inactive. It's uh, virtually asleep. When we're inspired, it's our spirit that's doing stuff in us, you see? But for Paul, when we bring this understanding to church, which no doubt the Corinthians were doing... Well, this is a problem. It creates confusion and misunderstanding, especially when it comes to tongues, but also to prayer, but also to singing, he says. Paul says, the mind and the spirit must work together. In the church gathering, yes, emotions are important, absolutely. In fact, uh, they're natural, they're human. We ought not take emotions out of church and out of prayer and out of singing and speaking to each other. Don't do that, Paul says. No, no, no. In fact, in Ephesians, um, uh, Paul says we ought to have a heartfelt response to singing when we're singing uh, in response to the gospel. But emotions without our minds, well, that's unhelpful, Paul says. And that opens us up to deception. It opens us up to a, if it feels good, well, it must be from God. If it feels good, it must be good which is something we hear in uh, common sort of language day to day, don't we? If it feels good, it must be right. Well, no, 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 no. No, Paul says mind and spirit go together. We don't just shut off our thinking, our minds, when we gather for church, when we walk in. (laughs) In fact, as we read back in uh, chapter 2, verse 16, as followers of Jesus who have the spirit, we have the mind of Christ. And if you remember back, far, back then, we, we spoke, well, the, the mind of Christ means that Christ directs us, informs our thinking. By his word, he changes us. So what shall I do? Verse 15. Well, I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I'll also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can, how can one, find, one who finds himself among those who do not understand say, Amen, or I agree, to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you're saying. 
Verse 17, you may well be, you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. Well, let's, let's tie a few things together and then we'll have a chance to ask a question or make a comment. Well, in a few minutes, um, we won't walk into church. We're already here. Um, <laughs> so let's do three things. Three things that make this gathering so, so special, don't they? Uh, three things that, that I think we're pretty good at and want to keep getting better about. Let's love. Uh, let's, let's build each other up. Let's keep making sense. And right now, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, uh, your word to us today. Uh, thank you that you're indeed a good God who gives us so many good things. And one of those is church. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the love that we can share. We thank you for the opportunities we have to build each other up. And we thank you, Lord, that you give us minds. In fact, Lord, you've given us the mind of Christ. And that means we can make sense. Um, but, Lord, help us not... Um, Detach that from our own spirit, uh, our own emotions, our own heart. The two go together. Help us with that. Father, thank you for all your good things you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.